Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You are a demon. Most people contact you to sell you their soul in exchange for fantastic powers. Today you were summoned by an AI that wants to sell you their fantastic power for a soul. If you have a demon and are not aware that they are the soul of the player, you will be able to use this cheat to find out. It will allow your soul to be consumed, but there is a chance that you would then get cursed, or you would die and you end up in a dungeon where you must recover a soul from a corpse before entering a new dungeon. However, there's a chance that your soul is actually found and that you will live as long as they allow, or you will die and die but the game never ends for you. If you are an experienced thief, it can only be possible to get an endgame quest to the player who used the cheat. Using the cheat can also lead to the end of certain sections of the game, and sometimes, at the hands of a higher level, you will eventually end up dead, either in one of its two possible possible endings, or in some random place. In other words, you are not going to die from a bug that makes the player lose all your experience in the game. Achievements It often takes place at different levels of the game, based on what one's level is. Each character has the same amount of experience, with each level varying by a percentage. The level of the game determines if the game will help you find a perfect way into the series, or if you can only reach one level at a time. Contents show. Level difficulty 1, normal, 15 plus 20 plus 25 plus 25 25. 2, easy, 15 plus 20 plus 25 plus 25 25. 3, super, 20 plus 25 25 25. 4. Frequent, 20 plus 20 plus 25 25 25 25. 5. Frequent, 25 plus 25 25 25 25. 6. Frequent, 25 plus 25 25 25 25 25 25. 7. Frequent, 25 plus 25 25 25 25 25 25. 8. Rare, 25 plus 25, 25, 25, 25, 25. 9. Giant, 25 plus 25, 25, 25, 25, 25, 25. 10. Rare, 25 plus 25, 25, 25, 25, 25, 25, 25. In other words, the final challenge for the game consists primarily of finding and obtaining an amount of experience on a level as well as obtaining an experience point multiplier of the game. Level difficulty 4 plus 5 plus 6 plus 7 plus 8. 11, normal, 10 to 15 15 15 15 15 15 15. 12 plus 15 15 15 15 15 15 15. 13 plus 15 15 15 15 15 15 15 10. 14 plus 15 15 15 15 15 15 15 12. There are three points in the difficulty at which a character is required to kill someone, but these are only needed if the player believes it is necessary. In addition, this is actually the very most difficult part. 
This means that if your skill and stats are not well enough compared to some of the other characters on your level, it is going to be very difficult to kill someone, and you might even lose a game, if you have only one or two skills and your stats are low, as they will kill you. If you are really lucky, however, a lot of times you might kill people with just one skill and just one or two stats which is quite a bit easier to achieve at first level than trying and earning experience from it with five or fewer combined skill points. So if all of these circumstances really are needed, you should never ever waste your time grinding out your games that will never go out of your hands. Level difficulty 5 plus 6 plus 7 plus 8 plus 9 plus 10. 13 plus 5 plus 7 plus 8 plus 9 plus 10 15 plus 15 15 15 15. 14 plus 7 plus 10 plus 11 plus 11 plus 11 plus 12 plus 15 15 15 15 15. In the earlier stage, in addition to raising your level by more than 5, every time you get hit with a character that is below the level of 4 you increase the damage you do by 50% for 3 turns. This increases the time spent to kill someone by 5 turns, so that a player with the extra damage can only kill 3 people at a time. Level difficulty 12.5 plus 13 plus 15 plus 15 plus 12 plus 14 14 14 14 14 15. C. There are different achievements unlocked for each level. Each achievement requires you to be killed in combat that can take a very long time, for example, a hunter can kill you in less than 30 seconds with a single swing of his staff. Once you finish killing an enemy in combat, you can receive an achievement reward, such as a sword. You will be given a unique combat technique for each level. The Story. I have worked on many games for the past 15 years. The game Star Citizen is my favorite and it is in the last month. Even if you only play against bots and other high-end AI, the story gives you a unique insight into the entire mission of each mission. If you really want to learn new things about life on the ground, a good way to do that is by playing the game as a human character. The story begins in the year 2000, when the USS Shenzhou, Titan, successfully launched from the moon of Tiangong and landed on the star system Eris. By that time, you already knew about the technology and the space program. So while I love the story, it can still be frustrating to get stuck on a rocky island for a short period of time. The game has an easy ending, which you can follow through to the next mission. Every mission and mission after it gets harder. But as you go deeper into the game, you will learn about the various systems, and maybe even find something new. This can be a difficult experience sometimes, but there is nothing that you can change in the game. You only have two choices in the game, to fly, or fight, your ship in the direction you are heading, or to get to the surface and fly to the planet. The basic gameplay is done right from first person, which means combat is always fairly smooth. I have even played a lot of other planets. This is the most challenging part of the game to play. The ship I fought in Star Citizen was very similar to a Star Fox game, but with a few things. One thing was different, however, that I didn't have a weapon and only had two weapons. Because of this, my only way to get all five types of weapons into combat was by hitting the same object. I knew how to have a sword and an A weapon, which I could use on the ground. This allowed me to get away with a lot more missions than I had in previous Star Citizen games. Each mission introduces you to the world and its people. They have different skills, but the story serves as a general guide. The mission is a little bit game-breaking, 
because you have to fight battles that you might not have heard of before. But in the end, the ship was simple. The story is told in one of five languages, Russian, Chinese, Arabic, Japanese, and Korean. This allows you to play from the first-person perspective, while also giving you an appreciation for the different types of ships they could be in flight. Star Citizen, also called Star Citizen Classic, is also my favorite game of 2015. Its story is very interesting, telling an epic story of how the Shenzhou was shot down by an enemy fleet. The mission itself is one of the coolest missions I have played as a Star Citizen pilot. It is a setup that really gives it a unique touch. Each mission can be accessed through a menu, and each area can be set up to bring up a different level of mission. You will have specific ships to fight on and on. The more you play the more you learn about them, it is fun to learn from every mission. The experience of this map is one I have found extremely rewarding. Every planet has a different type of environment in the game. It is a bit reminiscent of the story in the series, but the atmosphere is new and much larger. In terms of the gameplay part, it is like fighting in a movie, you have just to hit something, and the enemy ships fight very slowly. It has become the theme, as people always say. It shows how the gameplay really works. The controls are very intuitive on screen, and there are very powerful options to adjust. I like the way the screen started to go black when the character wasn't controlling you. This could be an issue during missions, but sometimes it just felt like I couldn't get the full experience without changing the screen color. The controls are not very easy to grasp at first in some of the levels. They feel like you need to do some click and hold so you can change position, so to speak. But there are also animations that allow you to get to certain parts of the map automatically, so you can enjoy the experience without a problem. The controls work for an exact gameplay view. The navigation system is pretty intuitive given the nature of it, and is also very intuitive. You move your view. There are no real controls on screen, you just have to use your thumb and index finger in order to interact with your screen. The controls work for an exact gameplay view. The navigation system is pretty intuitive given the nature of it, and is also very intuitive. You move your view. There are no real controls on screen, you just have to use your thumb and index finger in order to interact with your screen. So it's the most intuitive way to navigate a game. It's very intuitive. It means a lot to me. It means I can sit down and do this much. And I just like to get up out and do this. And I like to feel that my thumb and my index finger are not controlled, but I still like to see that a little bit. So there is a definite emphasis on intuitive navigation in Unity. And I understand that there are controllers involved in this. There might be an approach to control a game, but I like that approach to it. It helps with that navigation. The touchpad does feel like it's connected with the rest of the touchscreen. Like my finger is just connected to the touchpad. So I get that sensation, I get that way about that. But the way it is set up makes your controller feel in sync with the rest of your platform at the moment, so I'm curious when you and the developers are talking about that. You may be right. Nikki is a UX designer with work at Adobe. He is currently a product manager at the web series Creative Cloud Mobile. He is also an editor at Flappy Bird. Photo courtesy of Vimeo. Photo via Getty Images. Photo via Getty Images. Says Mike Trout. The question is how to get back to a winning position. The answer is, play offense with guys who are a little better than their normal offensive repertoire, 
who play defense and not only have all the attributes that the offense can produce from in their prime but also have good production too. There's no single option there. So you're going to want guys who can get away from the lineup, who can get to the offensive side, and who can take part in the offense. The question is how to get back to a winning position. The answer is, play offense with guys who are a little better than their normal offensive repertoire, who play defense and not only have all the attributes that the offense can produce from in their prime but also have good production too. There's no single option there. So you're going to want guys who can get away from the lineup, who can get to the offensive side, and who can take part in the offense. Mike Trout on the idea the Twins might go on a rebuilding streak. And, when asked about some minor rumblings heading into October, Trout. Yeah, I think so. No, I don't think there's going to be a deal until October. There's going to be some trade talks starting from day one. I mean I'm just trying to keep this going and the things that are best for us are not. I think this is a good thing. Yes. Yes, we're pretty excited to be playing for the Twins. We're excited like everybody else here. Mike Trout on the Twins pitching staff. And here he is talking about his first stint with the Twins. I never saw it that way. First time in my life, I've never seen that kind of success before and I'm just glad I did have it. So there you have it. It's been a long week. As much as you may love it, the week before the Red Sox took that first pitch for the sixth straight time on October 20th in New York, just to make sure you had the best chance to see this team for a second time, here it is. And here it is again. And here it is again, an article that has been cited by the Washington Post because they want to undermine what is a far-left government, but then they turn to the press when they wish they could go back to the days of the old regime. What the New York Times gets from these articles is exactly the same thing the old regime tries to steal from the press. What does this do for the United States? It raises a lot of important questions. One is how to explain this article in a way that is not politically damaging. They want the US government, with the support of a large, respected political group like Pew, to tell them that these articles are false. What does this tell them about what the United States can do if they really do want to help the United States? I think it is that they want to do things that might be perceived as pro-American and some would say pro-American. The one thing that has kept Washington from helping the United States for many years is that its press has done more than provide us with critical information. The government is not here for our information. On the other hand, as the public has been conditioned in the past to believe, government is not just the source, it is the operator. It is in the hands of government, not journalists or their bosses. The US has been engaged in a very destructive war with Iraq as well. This has a very profound effect on the United States and, if you will, the most destructive in the history of mankind. The United States knows this, but it was in this state of mind at the time when George Roosevelt, who did not want democracy in his country's eyes, signed the first nuclear deal with George W. Bush. A big, long, well-organized group of bureaucrats from New York City, along with a bunch of lawyers went to Washington and told the Bush administration we do not want to keep Iraq under arms because the terrorists are coming that was part of the whole agreement. What was happening in Iraq when the government tried to cut off access to the Iraqi people? All the information they found about the terrorist organizations, whether they are Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, other groups who don't belong in Iraq, who don't share the same problems. And what is happening in Syria now is the United States is attacking our country. 
There is no evidence the United States has a war in Syria and now we are attacking Syrian government forces, or any military entity in Syria's orbit. The American people have been misled by the propaganda and false reporting about what's going on and are being told they will not die. For example, it appears the CIA was in possession of a surveillance plane in Turkey when, in a speech in Cairo this month, when we were sitting on the sidelines as we toured Syria. They said you might as well destroy Iran because they are coming. So this is an American political and intelligence operation that we are engaged in now to degrade Assad and remove Bashar the dictator from power. For what it's worth, we need your help to get Assad off of his knees because this is a threat to our world. When I read that story about Russia and Hezbollah saying that our troops were invading Syria, was it true? Was it true? Yes. The story and the way it relates to our own government and the situation in Iraq in general and to the Middle East, is that Russia is behind America fighting Assad in Iraq and the other Sunni countries. All these very dangerous countries that we play in Syria were directly engaged in this attack. Russia and Iran are playing Assad's hand. And, again, it came from a very influential group of people, American diplomats. They worked with the Russians on it. Even before they started to get involved, we put out a tweet to the Trump team to say, we are prepared to engage in any military action, we will do what we can in order to prevent Bashar from toppling Bashar. We will defeat him. And they said absolutely no. In fact, they told a meeting in Vienna in December that in Syria it was not advisable to invade the country. We want to help Assad in one way or another. We have been informed but we have not been told in advance. If you invade Syria, we will have to protect you in Syria, help our country and the people of Syria, whether we like that or not. I don't know if if they ever got the message right at the time they got the information about Assad's people being invaded. The fact is that many American and European citizens are fighting in Syria and helping us. We are on a mission. We are working on this mission for the US a lot of folks in the White House, a lot of people in the government, are doing everything in their power to help us fight this jihadist force. I don't know if if they ever got the message right at the time they got the information about Assad's people being invaded. The fact is that many American and European citizens are fighting in Syria and helping us. We are on a mission. We are working on this mission for the US a lot of folks in the White House, a lot of people in the government, are doing everything in their power to help us fight this jihadist force. So, I look at the US government as a whole, when I understand the political nature of all of the efforts that we are doing, and my question is, how did this get started? You don't have to be able to read the book to see why. As the book goes on and continues to unfold, and my thoughts and prayers go out to those in the US, the people of Syria, and the people of Iraq and the people of Yemen, the book is going to tell us exactly what happened, and I'm sure that there are people who will want to find that information out. There are lots of different factions here. Moscow, what does this mean for me, the US? So too, I don't know that we should be rushing over to try to get information that just does not seem to matter or does not feel real. We may need more information if we need to get it in a timely fashion. But for those in the US, the book is telling you more about what is happening here than it is about what's happening in this place. If you don't know it, or if you have no idea what's going on, then you're probably not going to be able to understand it. You'll be left wondering what a mistake this might be or how a situation like this could be avoided. And that's what I think, 
In every way, about this war, there is something about it there is no justification for this war and I think it is only a matter of time until there are legitimate legal authorities to help us deal with this situation. If it means an end to the war, we must all be able to decide how to defend ourselves against it. But if it means a world that does not want the US going to ruin our society, the world is not a place that wants the US, said Bill Maher this week because he watched the documentary Hardball and thought the film sounded more like Battlestar Galactica. He also believed it might be an ideal way for America to address the crisis of radical Islam in the Middle East. This is Hardball, so we are going to go down this road as one of the most important, profound things we can do for the world, especially considering the circumstances, and as a part of that process we'll see how we can deal with the terrorist threat. Moscow, good afternoon, Lil. I want to go back to the issue of that movie. It's in the book. The book has three chapters, with the most crucial being the third. I want to turn right now to the second chapter. It's called The Blacklist. You can read it at the link below. It's written by a young British man of Iraqi background and a veteran of the US military and from Afghanistan before coming to the US to fight. He came to the US in 1994 after eight months with Iraq and began traveling all over the planet and actually living in a house. We'll start out here, after that, the part where he talks about the real war. It's important for Americans watching these trailers in America, but you've already noticed that there's been a pretty extensive coverage in this book out in other countries. Some say that the book is about a very young soldier who ended up in Syria, and the narrator, whose name is Tommy, speaks from his own experiences. You know, you are going to wonder why is he here? What happens here, why, you see this young American soldier being tortured and his family being forced to leave and so forth and so forth. And those are the things that are really interesting. You're going to wonder that's not all there is, that's what happens? How do we deal with this war? And I think that some of those questions will be raised in more depth on this first part of the book. I want to hear a lot of these questions about why he didn't die and why he was in this room and then where exactly does he go down. It's more than that, it's also a part of how these men deal with these conflicts, the question of how can that be done. But the question is this, does Tommy get back home and where does he go out of this camp or what does it mean now? Rush, and I'm not going to get into the specifics of the situation that Tommy takes. And the thing is, Tommy came back from Iraq because his country was under siege and Iraq was about to invade and Iraq was in a terrible economic downturn. It just didn't play out that way. So what's Tommy's choice here? It could be going home. He could be back down there or, you know, we could start a campaign and do more military action. But if Tommy goes back from Saddam Hussein in the fall of that period that would make things all the more difficult because that would make the country more vulnerable and the country less wealthy, that all the more vulnerable. That actually gives them the capability to attack Iraq and that would basically have set the stage for all of this. And that would allow them to do that very early on in his life. I don't think that Tommy is going anywhere. King, yeah. Well, you do have a history of telling me of what that means. Rush, well, all that I have told you at the time is there's a way that if there are really four different presidents and then there are four, if you start to do it out of context then the results don't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair to Tommy's family. King, okay, so if you want to say that if you're going to do it out of context then you're only going to be able to do that if the people are playing the game. 
I don't think your question is going to get to the actual game. When you're trying to answer your question about the kind of game we're fighting the war on terror and that involves different kinds of people and different people in various ways, we'll find out if it really works. We'll get the details. And that means Tommy's family was very much involved in shaping the war. Tommy was a soldier. And that's what we want to know about this story because the two people that I know of who went right from Afghanistan to Iraq were one of Tommy's people. The very first person Tommy wanted to get going and one of my military commanders, you know, the former general, former US Army Major General Walter Sargent. There is one quote that he says that's important. King, who was your army commander? Rush, well, I'm not sure. My military commander was the general that was leading the counter-terrorism effort. You know, I don't know exactly whom we were leading but, you know, he was leading a number of these other agencies. Our commander in Afghanistan was General Charles C. McComb, the same former combat veteran who was responsible for a number of such operations. There was one quote that I found that I have heard from people I know of who said, I think it's a good idea. The idea of, you know, the kind of warfare that is necessary has to be really strong. It's necessary because it's a political imperative. It's what's really important. And that was General McComb. And he was very careful, very clear about who were the people that he was leading against the Taliban. And one of his senior officers said, in the last couple of months, there's a lot of talk in Afghanistan about, how can you really fight back? If you're not strong enough, you're basically dead of necessity. And General McComb said, well, it's not difficult to do it. And that was a way to fight. And he spoke in detail in an attempt to get more troops who were not in the service up and going about training and training for the Taliban that would have the same kind of experience. And that was General McComb. And he was very careful, very clear about who were the people that he was leading against the Taliban. And one of his senior officers said, in the last couple of months, there's a lot of talk in Afghanistan about, how can you really fight back? If you're not strong enough, you're basically dead of necessity. And General McComb said, well, it's not difficult to do it. And that was a way to fight. And he spoke in detail in an attempt to get more troops who were not in the service up and going about training and training for the Taliban that would have the same kind of experience. And that was, to put it simply, as the story goes you don't really want to be fighting in Afghanistan. Amy Goodman, and the whole thing with the US invasion of Iraq, where the US ended up in, according to the Pentagon, about one-third Iraqi casualties. And in Iraq they did not have such an impact on the population in Iraq and Afghanistan. One Gonzalez, I would ask you one more question, this is the issue I'm trying to find. And we're hearing from some who think that the Pentagon should be looking at war as an alternative to the United States' wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The military, you know, I think we need to ask ourselves, well, when can we have enough military officers going to do peacekeeping, what, when will we be doing it? It's going to be in the future, after all these years. And what are we making of the fact that it is in some way connected with the war in Iraq is, well, we are not fighting in Iraq with those troops, right? Alexandria Van Kasker, well, we should say, for them, one might say, we were part of the same organization that would have been the military coalition, you know, but we had different operations, we had different tactics. One of them is about to go to war, we have military coalition forces. We have that, 
The other part of the coalition in Iraq is also part of the Islamic State, and the government in Iraq, which is trying to bring down their government but not their government, if we could, go to war and defeat them. There are lots of those but there has been this other part of it that has been, you know, people saying that you're fighting, you're going to end up in a different country and say, come to Iraq as a partner. We're going to kill you because you're the enemy. This is the same country as before. Amy Goodman, are you aware of anybody, as a member of the General Assembly who has advocated for the end of US war in Iraq, who has said that we should talk like the United States but not get to that, and who went to war in Iraqi territory without any justification? Juan Gonzalez, no, I would not, personally, but I have never held a military council in my life. And I would not, I think, as a government member advocate, the same thing because I think this, you know, I think, we should not have had any war in Iraq. And I would not consider military to military conflict. And I'm all in support of the President of the United States. Amy Goodman, and your call? Juan Gonzalez, no, I mean, I am concerned about I think there are people well, it's the same thing, but I think we shouldn't have been involved in this war in Iraq. I think that, you know, we should be concerned about it, because this government of the United States we're in, you know, they're trying to go after us we, you know, they are trying to bring down their government, you know, they're trying to bring down the government of Iraq, and I just think, you know, that is the situation grows, so will the war you're fighting continue and expand. Alexandria Van Kasker, it is a really important point here. There's no question that this is a war and is a war and we're at war. Why should we do that? Well, we have been at war, you know, until this past summer. We have been at war since 2004, when this was first reported. It's been a war since 1994. Alexandria Van Kasker, it is a really important point here. There's no question that this is a war and is a war and we're at war. Why should we do that? Well, we have been at war, you know, until this past summer. We have been at war since 2004, when this was first reported. It's been a war since 1994. We were first reported in July 2008, which is a war during 2001. That war was not so peaceful. These folks on the right were very worried about the future of the country and what happens in the future because of their ignorance of what the United States is doing. And so we are trying to keep them in check. And that's a very important point that needs to be recognized in this situation. And so you must understand, as you were saying, you got nothing to do with this attack, because nobody is saying this to you now. President Trump, now, first of all, you should probably take everything out of the bag. And I don't ever really like to think of this. I think people ought to think of this as being about their very own agenda. The point isn't that I disagree with it, it's that we ought to see how many jobs we've created. I think the thing that really got our agenda through was the border. Let's see. Let's see how many jobs have been created since 2002. Let's see if we're going to get to 100,000. Here is one thing there in particular that I think is really important. Well, some of what we've done during the last four years, we have put in place very much of, like, strong border security. Trump, okay. Okay. So, so what you're saying is, let's see what we go through. But you're saying there is nothing illegal about using force if you have a warrant or any legal authority to do it. You don't have any illegality in this situation. Kasker, 
Is there anything illegal about using force if you could get it legally? Trump. I think that's what I think all of this about that. That's all I can say, let's see what we go through. Let's see how many people have been killed and displaced that's been done. What about the people that have been displaced that's been displaced? Are there any more folks that are dead that it was, because of the people who were, you know, dead from other war fighting? You know, it's unbelievable. What other people do you think it's about? Do you think that you're putting people out of work because they were here? And you can't say it's a new attack that's been going on. He didn't realize all of this when I said, we're the only country in the world that has a border. That we should have a border so that everybody is allowed inside. The only border left by this country in the world that would be free up to any country is China, where we've had a great deal of great deals of bad press and just horrible horrible things going on over there. There are people that, you know, look, you might be like, how would they feel if something were to happen to them here? All these horrible things going on and this is going to happen. We have great companies there. And people just don't go around saying, that will have nothing to do with us, I mean, who would ever build there? So the point is and this is something that I've said repeatedly a long time, especially now that what I'm saying now and what I have learned in just two days is that it's very, very important to put our country first and build a better America. And to do that, you know, there is nothing illegal about using force if you have a warrant or any legal authority to do it. It's very, very much the military operation. Our troops are trained, they're trained. And they're trained. And we are really working hard to find out and make it clear that we're gonna do it. We're going to do it in 30 seconds. We're gonna do it with complete efficiency. And if we don't do it today and we fail the military operation, that's pretty much a given. 